0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: It had been a long day that Tuesday, October 24th in the year of our Lord, 1871. And it was a blessing for my three Chinese field hands that it was. The day started with bringing in the last of the grapes for the Angelica. My vineyards and winery were my principal support in those days. We had already harvested the Cabernet and the Merlot two weeks before and the wine would soon be ready to move from the vats in which the grapes had fermented into the casks where it would age. The grapes for the Angelica were always harvested last, as they did not ripen readily. Indeed, even when some of the grapes had already turned to raisins, there were still several green grapes among the clusters. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books in Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Anne Louise Bannon, author of the Old Los Angeles Mystery Series. In her latest installment, based on a true incident in the history of Los Angeles, 18 Chinese men are lynched in one chaotic night. And Dr. Maddie Wilcox is frustrated that she couldn't stop the violence. She's grateful that her three Chinese field hens are safe, but then one of them is found murdered, and Maddie is attacked. Now, she's not going to let the small-town prejudices stop her from unmasking the murderer. Hi, Anne. Thanks for joining me today. Well, hi, Louise. I'm so glad to be here. So, I should mention that I got to meet you in person for the first time earlier this year at the Left Coast Crime Festival, in case anyone wondered if bookmarks are worthwhile you gave me one of your bookmarks and I dove oh. into your world I I loved the first two books in the old LA series and the third one just came out so yes so that's why I was excited to interview you you write on your oh. website about how you first got the idea for the old Los Angeles series <laughs> from a speech your husband gave. can you explain more about that <laughs> yeah,
2: that poor man, I swear. Uh, no, my husband is the archivist for the city of Los Angeles, and uh, he was doing a talk on the Zanja system in Los Angeles, which was how they irrigated the farms and vineyards in uh, from way in the early Mexican period all the way up through the, uh, you know, right before the uh, California Aqueduct opened up. Um, so, this was a, you know, LA being as arid as it is and was, it, this was a pretty big deal. So the position is on Harrow, which was an official position through about 1911, was the uh, biggest paid person. He got more money than the mayor did. So Michael's talking about this system. He talked about how, you know, the you you, you go out, you pay your subscription to the zanjaro, and then you'd uh, go back, get your receipt, and then the zanjaro's men would come out and open up the sluice gates, and the water would rush into your uh, Zanja or ditch. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I write murder mysteries. What a great time for a body to pop up. And <laughs> I have to say, Michael was a little perturbed that I got a body out of his talk, but... <laughs>
1: You did go with it. God bless When I interview mystery authors, which is a new thing for me, I try to stay away from discussing characters that might or might not be red herrings. But we can probably talk about your protagonist. Oh, sure. Do you see yourself at all in Maddie? Can you tell us about Maddie Wilcox? Um... I would imagine
2: she has certain of my characteristics she does tend to be very liberal especially for that time um but her voice is that of louisa may alcott uh she is a woman of her time she's a, a very victorian prim lady always will be a lady uh that she does love clothes that's actually that probably is a little bit more in common with me um She's just, she was just an interesting person. I, I, it was kind of weird after I had that talk with my husband, it was weird how she started coming to life. And then I started hearing her voice and, um, that she was kind of an, she's a little interesting for a major protagonist in that she isn't as much like me as some of my other protagonists are.
1: Hmm. Uh, She's a cool character, I will say. I enjoyed, really enjoyed your descriptions of what everyone wore, the fabrics, the (laughs) stitching, the stuff. What kind of research did that require? Um,
2: A costume history class back in my undergrad days. (laughs) Well, that's the start of it. I've always had, I I love historical clothing. And um, one of the fun things about 1870, you know, the, the time from 1869 to about 18, early 1870s, this was the transition from the hoop skirt to the bustle. And if you look at pictures and I do have a couple costume history books because I like that sort of thing. And if you look at the pictures, you can actually see the big round hoop skirts evolving into a bustle in the back. Mm. And that's a lot of fun. Um, you know, researching the fabrics and, you know, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a fun era for fashion, I have to say. And I love
1: fashion. So Mm. I love clothing history. Okay. So Maddie treats her workers wherever they're from as friends, even going so far as to have them call her by her first name. How would that have gone over? with the townspeople back in the 1870s? Oh, it wouldn't have at all.
2: (laughs) Women called their husbands Mr. So-and-so by their last name. They didn't always refer to them, you know, depending on the situation. But no, people did not use first names, at least among the Anglo population. I'm not so sure about the Hispanic, but I would imagine it was fairly, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, formal. And so... The fact that she does, well, it started out as an accident. You know, she'd call for Mi- Senor Ortiz and whichever, you know, and then there are two Senor Ortiz's on the farm, and, um, Sebastiano and Enrique. And so it's like inevitably the one she didn't want was the one who answered. So she just says, all right, Sebastiano, Enrique. And by death of the city marshal, they're actually partners. She's decided, okay, and that would have caused a bit of a scandal because um, you didn't refer to you know the the Anglo's and the Hispanics didn't uh, mix as much as they do now. I mean, it, I mean, it was very common to have uh, white men marrying Mexican women, but there weren't a lot of white women around. Uh, Governor John Downey was married to Maria Downey, uh, who was a Hispanic. Um, John Downey, being one of the first governors of California. Uh, marshall warren who is in death of the city marshal he was married to juana lopez which was a very large family so
1: Hmm.
2: there was a lot of intermarriage but it wasn't you know there wasn't as much mixing between the classes it was still very you know there are them
1: maddie wilcox drinks wine with every meal nearly every meal and I'm wondering if you do that too. I also read that you give classes about wine. So can you talk about that, especially the Angelica <laughs> wine that Maddie loves so much?
2: Oh, I can talk all day about Angelica. Um, I don't have wine with every meal. Uh, in fact, I very seldom have it before five o'clock at night, but uh, we do generally drink wine after, uh, during and after dinner. My husband my wonderful husband, is a home winemaker. In addition to being a home winemaker, as in we get lots of wine at home, uh, he also, as archivist, works with the uh, El Pueblo Monument. It's just the state monument for the oldest part of Los Angeles, which you do see a lot of in the books because it it was the plaza. It was one of the more prominent spots in town at the time. Excuse me. Anyway, so... He, there is the oldest building in Los Angeles, was built around 1818. It's the Avila Adobe. It's in the middle of what's called uh, Olvera Street. It was Wine Street back in the day. And uh, there are these two vines there that are mission vines that are direct, but Michael has since found out are directly related to two mission vines at the San Gabriel Mission in San Gabriel, in San Gabriel uh, California. And so, being more or less friends with the director of the El Pueblo monument. He asked him, Hey, can I take some of these grapes and make wine with them? And the guy said, sure. And Michael bought, uh, got a, a professional winemaker and friend of ours, Wes Hagen to help with the pruning and another, uh, lovely lady, Dorothy. Oh God, why am I blanking on her last name? All of a sudden, anyway, uh, Gypsy Canyon. And, um, she was making Angelica based on old mission recipes that she'd gotten from uh, Santa Barbara Mission because she's up that way and had found uh, about an acre, just a whole bunch of these old mission vines growing on her property from the 1880s or 1890s. Well, Michael's looking at these things and he's thinking they're, they've been there since at least the 1860s. These are some of the oldest vines in the state. So Michael collected those grapes and decided, well, I'm going to make what they made back then. And that was Angelica. One of the reasons, it's basically a sherry, Hmm. Uh, you know, which is not surprising given that, you know, this was, the the Spanish put this in. And xerres, of course, is sherry, which is Spanish. So it's basically a fortified wine, which was very necessary in the hot climate Hmm. for preserving it. And fortified means there's excess alcohol or brandy in Mm
1: -hmm.
2: so michael started making this stuff and it came out really nicely and it's it's kind of fun because when maddie's complaining about you know the uh, in the beginning of death of the chinese field hands that the grapes don't all ripen at once i know that from personal experience right okay (laughs) you know so michael uh goes and uh You know, harvest the grapes and he may be actually doing it again in a couple of weeks. I forget when. Wow.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie-smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: This year, 2020, has been a terrible year for California Um, Uh in terms of the fires and for growers in particular, with hopes that we clean up our planet. California gets the help it needs to combat these ever Mm -hmm. more disastrous fires. Can you share a bit about Oddball Grape? It's a section (laughs) on your website in which you you make recommendations for wines that have been affected by fire. Everyone wants to know.
2: Uh, well, first off, uh, y- if you do get a wine that tastes like an ashtray, yeah, that's smoke taint. Uh, we do have some problems with that. Uh, I'm all great. Uh, unfortunately, it's kind of on hiatus right now. Michael's in grad school, and it's a team project between Michael and me. But we wanted to do wine education, but we wanted to do it with a very personality based. And I wanted to feed, uh, feature women and people people of color who are busy making wine because they don't get the wine the the press that a lot, the the white guys do, hmm. and so that's why we uh, why we the direction we went. It's just that you know we got busy and, and weren't able to uh, post as much, but we still have some fun things up there. I think oh, there's a fairly recent post on the whole Riedel, Do you really need different shaped glasses for each wine, kind of thing? Do do you? Uh, no. Okay. It's, 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 it's a total ripoff. There's only one glass that really affects it. And that's the big, it's what they call a burgundy or, or pinot glass. And it's the one with the big bowl and the narrow, uh, uh, opening. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, it looks like basically a brandy stifter on a long stem. Mm -hmm. And that is because you get more aeration. You got more surface area of the wine for the aromatics to escape. And there, there's not as big a hole for them to escape out of. So when you put your nose in that glass, it's very rich. Huh.
1: Wow. So you also offer classes on soap making and various uh-huh. aspects of writing and marketing. So my question is, when do you find time to write? And what's, what's your process? Oh, it
2: uh, the process will vary every now and then. Um, when I find time to write, I make time. Uh, actually, right now, I'm kind of uh, there's one of my other series that I think you want to talk about in a few minutes. Um, the operation Quickline line one, um, that was a series I actually wrote in the 1980s and now I'm rewriting and the dang thing has hijacked my brain and that's all I want to work on. That's all I want to do. I am stopping now. I mean, it's it's still up on my computer and I can read the next line I was going to be writing. Um, my process will vary depending on a variety of different things. Um, Usually I'll uh get an idea. Uh the characters will start talking to me. It's a very noisy place in my head. And uh, then what'll happen is I'll probably write down a few chapter maybe a few chapters, maybe a few uh I have to I have to know who done it, especially if it's a mystery. I have to know where the story's going. But then I'll usually start a few graphs, and then all of a sudden I'll realize I can't get any further unless I have everything all plotted out. And then I'll start working on my outline, and then I'll start – excuse me (laughs) – and then I'll start uh, just writing. And I'm kind of in the middle of that on – I forget what number book this one is uh, in the uh, Operation Quickline one, but I've just done – Earlier this spring, I finished the sequel to the most recently published. The most recently published, of course, is Sad Lisa, and I've just finished These Hallowed Halls. And then I've got My Sweet Lisa that got that one done, Little Family Business done, and now I'm in Just Because You're Paranoid, and I've lost count.
1: Wait. Wait. Well, since we're talking about Operation Line, and the reason you knew I was going to ask, because I, I asked you if it was okay if I asked about it. What yeah. are those about? Are they mysteries? And also, how do you decide uh, which series to work on it at any given time? Uh It's usually, well, I actually technically
2: should be doing a one-off that I've been planning for weeks and months. That's what I should be working on right now. And I'm not. It's because this one just hijacked my brain. That's not that common. How I decide it's a combination of instinct and interest. Uh, You know, the idea starts happening and wow, I really want to play this one out. Um, So as far as Operation Quickline, it's actually probably more of a romance with espionage intrusions Mm -hmm. than anything else. Um, It, when I originally conceived it and Lisa Witcherly and Sid Hackerburn started coming to life, it really was interested in the interplay between A woman who has very very strict values, Um, you know, she believes in sex is reserved for marriage. She's a practicing Catholic, and she comes up and is not forced, but finds herself working with this guy who's an atheist who believes in free love. I mean, and all of a sudden she's a spy, and it's like, okay, what do I do? And and literally, the first thing, the first line of the first book is, "My name is Lisa Witcherly. I live with my boss." I, I'm not sleeping with him. He has enough women in and out of his bedroom. He doesn't need me. I if that sounds defensive. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and she's really trying to figure out who she is. And she's trying to figure out how she ended up in this spot. And the fact is there is a decided attraction between the two. I mean, I really had to work. Sid was really an interesting character for me because on one hand, I wanted him to be really sexy And just really free and loose. On the other hand, I didn't want him to be sleazy because that would just be gross. And actually it wouldn't be that attractive to Lisa anyway. And so I really set him up. He was raised literally by a a bunch of hippies and beatniks and communists. And so he believes in free love. Sex is just a normal basic thing you do. And, you know, and it's all about the joy and the fun and everything like that. And, in one of the later books, he literally he literally comments in some ways. Lisa, who says no, period, value places just as high a value on sexual activity as I do. For her, it's something sacred. For me, it's something to be indulged in. Hmm. And it's 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 really kind of an interesting dichotomy. And again, it's
1: darn story has turned out to be much more about the relationship than it did about the espionage. <laughs> interesting. How long? Does it take you from the time you get the idea until your book is ready for release?
2: Oh, uh, at least a year or two. Uh, the, the actual writing doesn't take that long. It's the mulling over takes considerably longer. I tend to be one of those people. I have to write everything in my head first before I write put it on the screen. Mm. And mm-hmm. so I'll, you know, it, I, I'll be doing a lot of what does not look like writing, and then all of a sudden, clack 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 clack. Um, so it takes a while. Um, also, I like to, and once I'm done with the first or second draft, I like to set it aside for a while, let it marinate, let it stew, and then go back to it and say, oh, shoot, I effed that up. Oh, my God, there's a plot hole. Oh, my God. Hmm. You know? okay. And that takes a little bit of time, too. So and then, of course, the, the release process, I try to get things ready to go about six months before they're actually out. Mm
1: hmm. I also read one of the books in the Freddie and Kathy series, which is pleasingly set in my hometown, Chicago. First, can you tell me the story about how the series started? And second, will we hear again from Kathy and Freddie?
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, I thought it was in New York City. There's a couple scenes in Chicago, I think.
1: Well, those are the ones I remember. Oh, I I was okay.
2: Uh, No, uh, Freddie and Kathy. uh, That was kind of a fun one. That actually did. uh, I had had a dream, and for some reason, the image of a theater marquee with a Model T. This is set in the 1920s in New York, and the theory, you know, I saw this, and then you know, Freddie started talking to me and. It was right around that time I was literally baking a cheesecake for a party of some sort. And I had on my CD player, one of our first CDs, the Ella Fitzgerald singing the George and Ira Gershwin songbook with the Nelson Riddle Orchestra. And if you ever want to get a terrific CD, that's the one to get. It's just fabulous. I know that CD well. I love it. So there's Ella singing fascinating rhythm. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow, dancing along and slop the cheesecake. (laughs) Or a bunch of the cheesecake slanted on the floor. Not (laughs) not not
1: savable?
2: Well, no, it was just a little of the cheesecake, but it was. And as I'm cleaning the mess up and getting the cheesecake actually into the oven, it occurs to me, Fascinating Rhythm is a song about obsession. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and it just, the wheels started uh, turning and turning and turning, and... Sure enough, I, uh, oh, and then on top of that, I uh, actually was riding my bike, got hit by a car and landed on my elbow. And so I had this broken right elbow and I was bored and I'm watching. Well, shoot, I could do some 1920s research. I can watch, you know, uh, AMC was broadcasting a lot of stuff. So I watched The Sheik with Rudolph Valentino. I watched Wings, which, by the way, is a hell of a good film. So I was watching some of the silent films from the era too, and all of a sudden, start it just everything started coalescing,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: I wrote fascinating rhythm. I actually did the fir- crank the first draft out. Now I've done some re- a lot of rewrites on it since, but I cranked the first week uh, draft out in two weeks because I didn't have anything else I was doing. I was recovering from this broken elbow,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, and of course Kathy and Freddie had to keep talking to me, darn them. And next thing I know, I'm writing Bring Into Bondage. So.
1: What, could, do you know offhand how many books you've published altogether? Published about 12, 13, 14. Ah, that's all time.
2: Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's published. I mean, I, I had a bad first marriage. Okay. So I did a lot of writing in the mid to late 80s, early 90s. So uh, that's, yeah. Well, you know, hey, I got a wonderful kid out of it. So I'm not complaining too much.
1: Okay. Um, Another question. Why did you decide to self-publish rather than going the traditional route?
2: Uh, I had been trying to do the traditional route. And no matter what, everybody liked stuff, but they didn't like it enough, which was really frustrating. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And uh, then I had a friend uh, who had written a really, really good book. I didn't know how good it was when she did, but she was saying how she wanted to self-publish because she was looking at all the hassle of getting the agent, getting the publisher and getting rejected and all the other hassles. And the fact that even after it got published, she still would have to do all the publicity and all the other work. And I'm sitting here going, she's right. She's right. Shavings. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do that. I mean, and the real, real, reality is you're doing almost all the work the, the anyway. And I says, screw this. I'm not giving them and only getting 40, you know, like 20% of what I work my arse off for.
1: Mm, a 20% might be high. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's I mean, like a dollar per ebook and I don't know. Oh, it's something it.
2: ridiculous, you yeah. know?
1: And I sat there and said, why am I doing all the, if I'm doing all
2: this, work promoting writing, paying an editor anyway, heck with this. I'm doing it myself. And it was, it was tough. It was quite a learning curve, but it's, it's been worth it so far. Uh, It's the hard part is, is there's just so much out there and it's really hard getting noticed. So Mm
1: -hmm. I hear you. Um, So now you said you were starting, you were on an Operation Quickline series book, but what's happening for you next? What are you working on next? What can we expect to see?
2: Oh, what can you expect to see?
1: Well, I do, the the fun thing with the Operation
2: Quickline stories is that I do blog them on my uh, website. I have an ongoing one right now called White House Rhapsody, uh, kind of a straight romantic fiction I'm a little torn between whether I'm going to put up uh, These Hallat Halls, which is the next Operation Quickline one, or a time travel novel that I wrote and have rewritten a couple of times called But World Enough in Time. So I don't know if that's going to be next, but that's probably what you're going to see next. Uh, I have a book that has been edited. I just have to go ahead and produce it, call it and it's a, a contemporary called Rage Issues. So I'm thinking that may be my spring release uh, coming up, uh, and then I'm also working on another manuscript. That the one I, I agree, thought I was going to be working on this uh, this uh, semester, and I'm like, "Oops, working on QuickLine instead." Um, and that's called Running Away to Boston. That's kind of a techno, I hope, thriller. <laughs> and um,
1: how do you um, how do you find an audience? When your books are of so many different genres?
2: Uh, that I have no idea. And, it, but you know, the thing is, I am the ADD poster child. Asking me to stick to one thing is not going to happen. I've been trying for 60 odd years. It ain't happening, folks. So <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's who I am, it's part and parcel of it. And, you know, I'll find an audience some way. There'll be people who will love, you know, the, the old Los Angeles series and hate quick line. There are people who think, Oh God, I love Freddie and Kathy. They're terrific. And hate old Los Angeles series. I'm, I'm just, I'm past worrying about it. I, I just, it's what I am. It's what I do. And I'm not going to use a pen name. I don't really want to. So.
1: Okay. I like your attitude. Mm-hmm. And it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I wish you the best of luck. And I'd like to be informed when the next um, when the next old Los Angeles book comes out. And that I'm also will- interested in Freddie and Kathy. And maybe I'll have to start the other ones. So. <laughs> okay,
2: I have to be honest, I don't think the earlier quick line ones are as good as I thought the others. They've just gotten a lot better. Sadly, so really came out well. But okay, uh,
1: yeah, I'll expect some guidance from you on what to. <laughs> Thanks so much for spending time with me today, Anne. Well, it was thank lovely. you, Wade. It was lovely. I had, I, I'm having a blast. This is great. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is GP Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Anne Louise Bannon, author of Death of the Chinese Field Hands, the third book in her old Los Angeles mystery series. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, to please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad free, invite only network focused on the creativity community. As New Book Network listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash nbn.